automobiles. How about that? I'm not impressed, are you? <laughs> okay, well, <laughs> I, thought, I thought I'd get a smile out of it anyway. <laughs> I used to sell cars. <laughs> Wheels, deals, and automobiles. Well, we are going to be talking about cars tonight in our financial series, and for a number of reasons I'll explain to you in just a little while. But before we begin, let me tell you that Jesus is the sweetest name I know. His word is true from cover to cover, and everything that he has to say about life, now the gospel is most important. His death, burial, and resurrection purchased our salvation, and we never want to put anything above that. But he speaks of a lot of other things in the, in the scriptures, Old Testament and New Testament. And so if we preach the whole counsel of God, we're going to speak about some things that sometimes would seem unusual. And speaking about buying cars seems like this is a weird thing to talk about from the pulpit. But if about 30%, nearly a third of everything that Americans spend, if about a third of what they spend goes into automobile expense and our stewardship is commanded to be a good stewardship for the Lord because it's His money that we're handling, wouldn't it make sense that maybe we ought to see what uh, scriptures apply to maybe purchasing an automobile or anything else? So in Proverbs 22, the Bible says, A good name is rather to be chosen than great riches and loving favor rather than silver and gold. So as we deal in, in debt of any kind or any other activity of life, we ought to maintain a good name. And, and uh, I heard an automobile uh, well, I heard somebody else tell me about an automobile dealer just in the past week uh, that the church he goes to, they know he's an automobile dealer and he gets taken or tries, people try to take advantage of him because of their bad credit. They want him to go out on a limb and finance them and put his own finances at risk. And when they've ruined their good name and now if he were to do a lot of that he'd ruin his good name so a good name is to be chosen in verse 2 it says the rich and the poor and there, there's two grades of people right there the rich and the poor and neither one is bad because they are rich or bad because they're poor neither are they the better because they're rich or they're poor but they are two classes of people so the rich and the poor meet together and the Lord is the maker of them all a prudent man foreseeth the evil and hideth himself, but the simple pass on and are punished. In other words, if we don't look into the future about our stewardship, we could end up in trouble and be chastised and punished and hurt because of it. In verse number 4, he says, By humility and the fear of the Lord are riches and honor and life. By humility. Sometimes we have to swallow our pride and say, Well, I didn't know as much as I thought I knew about this, and I'm going to have to do a retake on it. And so God's got the word that can help us to do a retake about how we handle our finances. And then he says in verse 5, Thorns and snares are in the way of the froward. He that doth keep his soul shall be far from them. Train up a child in the way he should go. And when he, was, when he is old, he will not depart from it. Train up a child. We're going to have a message, the Lord willing, uh, sometime in the future uh, about teaching finances to our children when they're little. And if we can establish good financial habits in them uh, when they're little then it won't be as difficult for them maybe as it was for us after we got older then verse 7 the rich pay close attention to this one the rich ruleth over the poor and the borrower 
is servant to the lender. The borrower is servant to the lender. We're talking about financial bondage. And the more we go into debt, the more in bondage we are, and the more we become a servant to those who lend to us. And they have a great deal of control over our finances, over our time, over how we would conduct ourselves in the Lord's service because of financial bondage. Let's pray together and then we'll get into the lesson. Father, I pray that you'd bless us tonight. Give us the sweet Holy Spirit in our hearts to teach us the things that we can glean from your word and from the experience of those who know, uh, know a lot about the subject that we shall address tonight. We ask you to bless it in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, in, in messages like this and about the uh, financial bondage and financial freedom, don't think for a minute that your preacher is not without a little fault in this area. I said last week that I had made plenty of my own mistakes and these messages are not to be meant to be scolding or stiff-arming anybody into doing anything. It's meant to be advice from wisdom and experience, but mostly the Word of God from Scripture. It's not in the power of the preacher anyway to drag anybody from financial bondage and I certainly don't have the money to buy anybody out of it. So we're going to have to learn from the Word of God. I can make a contribution to getting you out of financial bondage by relaying the Word of God. And a contribution is all I can do. The rest of it's up to you and, and the Lord. Talking about a contribution. An obese, a very obese woman got on a crowded bus one day and, and uh, there was no place to sit. And she looked around and she huffed and puffed said, Is nobody going to... Stand up and give me a seat. And this little skinny guy stood up and he said, well, I'm willing to make a contribution. <laughs> and, uh, you know, we can't do it all. I believe our members and our families that, and even people watching online uh, can serve the Lord better if they're not in financial bondage. Would you agree with that? We can serve the Lord better if we're not in financial bondage. There may be someone in need, maybe a, another church member, maybe someone on the outside, or maybe a church uh, offering need. And there might be times when we, well, I wish I could help with that, but I'm strapped up to here, man. I can't do anything. Well, if we're not in financial bondage, man, we can help out in the service of the Lord in a lot of different ways. Uh, we got our house and property paid off a number of years ago and, and got my old pickup paid off. And, and it's old and ugly, and it's a Ford, but that thing runs, <laughs> and it gets me from point A to point, point A to point B or C and does a good job of it. Our house is, is not uh, a mansion by any stretch, and a lot of people maybe would uh, have disdain even for where we live, but it's paid for. And since we've got a couple of things paid off like that, we've been able to give extra offerings and help people and do things that we couldn't do before because now those those enormous payments that we're doing, uh, making on other things like houses and cars, uh, we've got to the point now where we've got a little more help. And if you're needing to borrow some money, don't ask me. See Denny. <laughs> Wheels, deals, and automobiles. Well, one of the greatest factors that keep people in debt and in bondage is not knowing when and how to buy automobiles. And you say, well, is this really addressed in the Scripture? Well, what's the, here's some principles that really do address a situation like this. Uh, 
Sometimes people think, well, I already know all this stuff. I, I know, I've been, I've been doing this for years. Well, repeating something is not learning it. I've repeat, repeated some things when I was in school. <laughs> that didn't mean I was learning it. And sometimes uh, we have to see a fresh new approach to get things in order. The average American family spends about 30% of its income. And there's your blank on your fill-in sheet, I believe. The average American family spends about 30% of its income on automobiles. That's almost a third of everything that comes into our pocket goes out by means of an automobile, the gas it burns, the tires on it, and oil changes, maintenance, repairs, and things like that. And the burden of transportation falls more squarely on the shoulders of poor people, lowest income families, than anybody else. And lower income households spent 30%. Now this is from a government reporting agency, the Bureau of Transportation, for the year 2022. They run a little behind. I don't know if they got statistics out. I didn't find statistics for 2023. Our census taker probably has all of that, but but uh, we won't make him look it up. And so the, the government keeps up with some of these things. And they said in 2022 that lower income households spent 30% of their income on transportation. And that number is up from 10% when I taught on this just a few years ago. And I try, I've told you last week, I try to teach on these things every few years because if you're like me, you need to be reminded of it and things change and methods change and our condition of our finances change. Maybe our spiritual desire to do better changes. And so for that reason, we need to repeat this every few years. And that number up of spending 30% on the automobile, that number is up 10% just since a few years ago. The automobile ordeal costs Americans hundreds of thousands of dollars, and it keep, takes each individual, might cost you hundreds of thousands of dollars just in this one single lifetime. One person who trades cars often and buys new cars, in the course of a lifetime, you will probably spend hundreds of thousands of dollars. What if that was invested in a, in a mutual fund or some other investment vehicle? Man, wouldn't we have a glob of money to hide from the government? I mean, to uh, spend later on. <laughs> well, well, are you sure, preacher, that we ought to be even talking about this from the pulpit? Look at Luke chapter 12, verse number 42. Luke chapter 12, verse 42. Jesus, and you know this already, but Jesus spoke more, listen to me closely, Jesus spoke more about money than he did about heaven and hell put together. It's true. Jesus said in his parables, in his teaching, there's, there's hundreds of verses in the New Testament about money. And so is it not worthy of discussion? Luke chapter 12, verse number 42. And the Lord said, Who is that, that faithful and wise steward? A steward is somebody who takes care of things for somebody else. Everything, the Bible says that, that everything belongs to the Lord. The cattle on a thousand hills and the hills underneath the hooves of the cattle belongs to the Lord. He loans 
money to us to use. And so if it's the Lord's money and we're stewards, we ought to take good care of it. Can you say amen there? If it belongs to the Lord, we ought to take care of it. Whatever he, he gives us a family. Look, he gives you a family. You ought to take care of that wife. Wife, take care of that husband. Uh, parents, take care of those kids. See that they grow up in the nurture and admonition. It doesn't matter what it is. If the Lord talks about it and says, this is the way you ought to do things, we ought to do it. And the Lord said, who, who then is that faithful and wise steward whom his Lord shall make ruler over his household and give them their portion of meat in due season? Blessed is that servant whom his Lord, when he cometh, shall find so doing. Of a truth, I say unto you, that he will make him ruler over all that he hath. I believe in the millennial reign of Christ, the thousand-year reign. When we're done as Christians on this earth and we go to be with the Lord and he brings us back during the millennial reign or if we live to uh, be raptured out, uh, when he brings us back for the millennial reign, I think part of his governing strategy during the millennial reign will be to those who were faithful into this, in this life as being stewards. I mean, why would he pick somebody that didn't do a good job, right? If Scripture commands Christians to be good stewards of God's money, shouldn't we take those principles and apply it to such a big-ticket item as an automobile? Yeah, thank you. <clears throat> if something is that expensive, we ought to pay attention and apply his principles to it. Now, Buying an automobile, automobile can be very intimidating because we don't buy, most of us don't buy an automobile every day. But when you go to a car lot, dealership, you're dealing with people who do it every single day. They have been trained and they know how to get you to pay top dollar for their product. And look, before we go on, I'm, I am not railing on salespeople. I were one. <laughs> I sold cars, I've sold insurance. Anytime I wasn't in full-time ministry, I spent most of my time, uh, if I was making a living at anything besides being in the ministry, I was in sales. So I'm not against salespeople. And they've got to make a living. They just don't need to make it all off of you as an individual. And so we got to know how to deal with people who do this every day in order to get a better deal. And we're not talking about being a skinflint or not being generous are not letting them make a living. They need to make a living. They've got to feed a family too. So yeah, let them make some money. But I don't want to make it all off of my deal. If we learn how to buy an automobile, we will be a good steward in the Lord's eyes and we'll have peace and more of an abundant life because we're not in financial bondage. Isaiah 26.3, I, I signed it as my life's verse. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on thee. Well, when it comes to buying automobiles, we better keep our mind on him instead of being swept away with the emotions. We see this beautiful car. Man, that thing's exactly what I need. And our emotions are overflowing. No, wait, you better consult him. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace. Well, let's see. There's a sacred and a spiritual in a lot of people's mind. Some things we do, like buying cars is just a secular thing, not sacred. I think in the Christian's life, everything is sacred. 
because we are dealing under the king of the universe. And everything we ought to do, everything that we do ought to be looked at from a spiritual perspective. The Bible's principles should apply to our choice of food, clothing, housing, automobiles, education, and anything else you can think of. We ought to filter it through God's will first and through His principles. There ought, to be, there ought not to be anything that we do that we think, well, this is not any of the Lord's business here. Everything's the Lord's business for the Christian. But we get in a big hurry sometimes. We ought to let him lead us. Proverbs, or I'm sorry, Psalms 27, 14. The Bible says, wait on the Lord. Be of good courage. He shall strengthen thine heart. Wait, I say, on the Lord. Waiting, waiting. The command is to wait instead of getting in a hurry. Most of my big mistakes in buying automobiles and buying a lot of other stuff too was because I didn't want to wait. Afraid that deal will be gone tomorrow if I don't get it today. The salesman said his price is good for today. You think he's going to turn your money down tomorrow? <laughs> well, what if he sells that vehicle? They only made one in the United States. Uh, there's not another dealership. There's not another car. Not another day to pray about it and think about it. Make sure we're, we ought not to kick the doors open unless God opens them. If we kick a door open that God didn't open, we're asking for trouble. And uh, Phillips Brooks, the old preacher of old time in Boston, he said, trouble is I'm in a hurry, but God isn't. Vance Havner, another old time preacher, he said, he who waits on God wastes no time but it seems like we get in a hurry and got to have this thing right now well sometimes we can buy it right now but that doesn't mean that every time we see one we think we want we've got to do it right now if, if we can't afford it or if it's not the right one for our family or how I'd have you well we got to answer four major questions and these will be on your blanks that, uh, that you're filling in number one when should I buy an automobile? We've got these answers on the screen. When should I buy an automobile? When? Well, we, we came in across this verse in Ecclesiastes just a while back. Ecclesiastes 3, 1. To everything there is a season and a time to every purpose under the heaven. God has appointed times and he knows when it's best. And we don't always know. And so we need to find out what is the best time. Before buying an automobile, we first need to decide, do we really need it? Do we really need it? More pride is involved in buying a vehicle than just about any other financial decision in life. Pride. Because the automobile demons come and sit on our shoulder and they say, boy, you'd look cool driving that. I mean, it's a convertible. It's a, it's a five-speed or eight-speed. This thing, and it's real pretty. And you'd look so cool. A chick magnet. <laughs> when you get my age, you're not looking for chicks anymore. You're looking for the next meal or a bathroom. <laughs> and so, some people think you are what you drive. I bought some pretty cool cars in the past. I don't think people liked me any better when I had those than, than when I was driving a clunker. 
but we, they advertise this on TV, you know. They make that car look so good, and, and they're, they're sliding that thing around, doing donuts, and, and they come to a screeching halt, and all these pretty girls are walking up and admiring them. And, and man, they romanticize it to the point where you think, man, if I just had that car, you'd be in debt. Most peoples are based on want and not need. How should we decide when we need an automobile? Most people trade in a vehicle when it's about, now this is average, people, none of these statistics means this is the way it is every time, ironclad, it means averages. But the average person uh, in America trades in a vehicle when it's about three and a half years old with maybe forty to 60,000 miles on it. And that thing's just ready to be driven. The average car can be expected to give us at least 150,000. Now, I'm at back in the 50s when I first became familiar with cars, when they got 100,000 on them, man, they hauled them to the junkyard. That thing, that thing ain't no good. Now, you can, you can drive one, a, a lot of, especially some of the imports uh, that are well made, you can drive them three and 400,000. I know, I know some people that had uh, uh, Lincoln town cars that they drove over 400,000 miles. And once you get them paid for, then you're driving it nearly for free, at least for free pertaining to payments. And so most people trade them off just when they got to the point where they can really save some money. My Ford is a 2000, my truck is a 2008. It's F-150. And it has 215,000 miles on it. 215,000. And I haven't had hardly anything done to it. Oil change, a couple little front end parts, but nothing major. 215,000. I'm planning on that baby going for more than 315. Probably more miles than I will. Well, we shouldn't get rid of a vehicle when not even half of its life is up. Wow. Most financial experts suggest that we keep a vehicle until it is at least eight years old. At least eight years old. We had a Dodge Charger that, I, don't, I guess we had it more than eight years. I'm sure we had it more than eight years, didn't we? And, uh, and it got, we planned on keeping it, man. We didn't have any intention of trading it in any foreseeable future, but uh, it, it got crunched in an accident. And so we had to replace it. But, man, after we got that thing paid for, we were driving it for free. <laughs> and somebody said, when are you going to trade that thing in and get you a new one? Why would I want to trade it in? Make $700 a month car payments when I'm driving this one for free. <laughs> Paul and Dee's got one that's got nine gazillion miles on it. <laughs> How many miles you got, Brother Paul? 371. It's still going. You should keep a car until it's at least eight years old or has no less than 150,000 miles on the odometer. That's, that's your best driving time. It's free, except for the repair work, which, I mean, you say, well, what if I have to spend 500 on getting a thing repaired? Maybe I'll go ahead and trade it. 500, that'd just barely make possibly one monthly payment 
I'd fix one for 500. That's why I think on our church van, you know, it's, it's not eating up with miles and it's good motor and transmission. That's why I think it's worth spending a couple thousand on if we have to and get that thing fixed up and drive it because we're, we're driving it for free. And so we can afford to pay a few bills on it. If we bought a brand new one, that'd be about two monthly payments. <laughs> and so it wouldn't make sense. The only sensible financial reason for replacing an automobile is dependability. Now, I don't think, I don't think, Husbands, I don't think we ought to put our wives out on the road in the middle of the night in a car that won't get them home. Uh, you don't want them to get stranded somewhere. But you do a little extra work on it, put it up where it is dependable until it's just gone as far as it can go. I'm not saying there's not ever a time when you ought, to trade, ought not to trade, but we probably trade a lot more often than we ought to. Now, if you're dripping with extra money, <laughs> you've got oodles of money just, I mean, it's just bulging the bank account, and you want to buy a brand new car? Well, have at it. <laughs> but most of us are not that way. I had a Corvette one time, and uh, so we made him mad, and he left. <laughs> no, he's going, probably got somebody else crunched their cars the reason he's leaving. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, he's going to go chase a Corvette. I watched a video where he or he was chasing one up through uh, Russell and, and uh, up towards uh, Bradford and up that way a week or so ago. <laughs> it was pretty, pretty interesting. I had a Corvette one time, and I loved that thing, and, and I bought it emotionally because I always wanted a Corvette. And this one came available, and it looked like a good price, and I bought the thing. This was before I was saved and, and didn't have much sense either. And so I bought the thing, and man, I loved driving it, and... Then one day, we went for a family ride. And as you know, a Corvette is a two-seater. There's a place for me, the driver, and a place for my wife. And then we had three little heads sticking up in the fastback. That was back in the days before they'd send you the guillotine for having kids without seatbelts on. Three kids in the back, and their little noggins are sticking up, looking around while we're driving down the road in the Corvette. Uh, I got to thinking, you know, this doesn't make sense. Time to grow up. And so I traded the Corvette off and got a, a car that had a front seat and a back seat. And my, that was the good news. I got one that was made more for a family. And the bad news is I bought a brand new one. And that was ignorant because uh, I had to pay a lot of sales tax on it and, and ended up trading. I used to trade all the time, every year, sometimes more than once a year, trade for a new car. And it was dumb. I paid out gazillions of dollars like that. Well... If we decide we really do need an automobile, and only you know if you need it, and you can seek advice and counsel and some input from your family and people that you trust. But if you do really decide that you need a vehicle, then our next question would be, what kind of vehicle do I want to get? What kind of vehicle do I want? You say, well, what difference does that make? Well, what kind of vehicle can I afford I saw a Corvette on Marketplace on Facebook last week for $8,000. But it was a 1984 and probably had been hot-rodded to death. Now, if you buy a brand new one, it may be upwards of hundred grand. So do I like Corvettes? I love them. I dreamed of one the other night. I dreamed that I had that thing on a dirt track. Man, I'm going around that dirt track throwing dirt everywhere and cornering that 
those sharp turns and just having a big time. Then I woke up and my Corvette was gone. Would I like to have a Corvette? Yeah, that'd be nice to have. But can I afford one? That's the question. And so we all have to ask ourselves, is my ego going to make me go ahead and buy something I can't really afford and have to struggle to make the payments and how payments is going to last for 10 years? Or do I need to get what I can really afford? Well, we need to face the cold, hard facts. Good habits, good patterns make us good stewards of God's money. The Lord Jesus came that we might have life and we might have it more abundantly and he wants us to be joyful stewards, but we have to be good stewards. In Luke 16, 1, he said, and he said also unto his disciples, there was a certain rich man which had a steward and the same was accused unto him that he had wasted his goods. Well, if we waste money on things like certain cars we can't afford, I wonder if Jesus wouldn't look at us that way and say, he's wasted my goods. Spending large amounts of money on cars we can't really afford will yank out of our budget money that could have been spent on clothing that our family needs, groceries that our family needs, utilities to keep us warm. So to stay out of financial bondage, we have to be aware of at least three financial traps. Let's go across those real quickly. Trap number one, here's, here's the thing we've got to deal with, and the salesman at the car lot is going to plunge this one on us right away. Trap number one is the real cost of low monthly payments. And so we have to, uh, we have to consider the, the salesman is going to ask, well, what kind of payment can you afford? Have they ever asked you that? What kind of payment can you afford? You know what they're saying? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to sell you the most expensive car I can figure on and just stretch those payments out till you can afford it. You can't afford the car, but the salesman they can, I'll stretch those payments out till they think they can afford it. And you've got to pay on it till the Lord comes back. What kind of payment can you afford? Your response on the payment amount only clues him in to how long of a term, uh, uh, terms of payment he can get you roped into. He's not concerned about how many years you're going to pay on this thing. Not his problem, that's your problem. So he's just, he's just thinking about how he can make this car work for you on a monthly payment. You're the one that's going to be struggling making those payments, not him. And again, I'm not railing on salespeople. I'm just saying they work for a company and they have a sales manager who puts pressure on those guys to sell the most expensive car they can and make the most because they get paid on a commission usually. And so the more dollars they bring in off of a sale, the bigger their commission is. And the sales manager gets a commission on that too. And so if they stretch those payments out and get you to buy a more expensive car, they get a bigger paycheck at the end of the week. But you're the one that has to pay for it. Here's the proper response. When they ask you that at the car lot, well, how much payment can you afford? And they're trained to ask you that. Your response ought to be, I just need to know the cash price, not the monthly payment. 
Now, that doesn't mean you can't finance it. But at this point, you're not, uh, you're not giving them the reins to this deal. You say, I, want, I just want to know what the cash price because that's the only real number you can deal with because the more variables that get figured in, like how many extras they can sell you, undercoating and floor mats and, and all of the goodies, the wax job and everything that goes with it, uh, they'll just tack all that on there. And what you want to know is what is the exact price of this car? And then you can go down the street or get on Kelly Blue Book Craigslist, AutoTrader, other online sites. I always try to use Kelly Blue Book. It's always been good for me, and and it's consistent because it does measure the actual sales. Now, the car dealers will tell you, you can't use Kelly Blue Book. They'll tell you that. You can't use Kelly Blue Book. It's not accurate. Well, that's because it gets into their profit. (laughs) And so you just go ahead and use it anyway. You don't have to tell them you're using Kelly Blue Book, but... If they, if they do know it, then don't back off. Just say, well, that's what I go by. That's, that's what I've told them in the past. That's what I go, I go by. Kelly Blue Book, private party value. That's as of an individual out here uh, down the street selling their car. How much does it normally sell for? What will it actually bring? What is it bringing on the market? Because what they price them for sitting on the lot, you see that nice big sign on the windshield that says uh, low, low price of 37900 well, that doesn't mean that car's worth that much. That means what, that's what they're going to ask so they can build in enough profit to afford to trade for your junker and make you think you're getting a good deal. <laughs> what you want to know is what are people really paying for this thing when all this haggling's done? And Kelly Blue Book, private party value, will tell you pretty close. Then they've got a good value, a fair value, an excellent value. I don't see hardly any excellent cars anywhere. If it's a used car, there's not many at excellent. It may be good or it may be fair, but very few excellent ones. Excellent means it looks like showroom quality. No dings, no dents, not a, not a pack on it anywhere. So, trap number two. What else do we need to know about these traps? Trap number two is the cost of zero interest. They'll tell you, you finance this, it's zero interest all this year or all two years or for the life of the loan. It's zero interest. Do you know they build that in somewhere? You ever heard the saying, or is this original with me? There ain't no, <laughs> yeah, there ain't no free lunch. It may look free. The only thing that the mouse needs to figure out is why that cheese on the trap is free. Why is that cheese on the trap free? (laughs) There's a catch somewhere. And zero interest, not saying it's never real, (laughs) at the end of a year closeout or something, there might be times when zero interest might be uh, a legit deal. But usually it's built in somewhere, even from the manufacturer somewhere down the line to the dealership, there's money that's built into the price of that automobile that's going to get that interest rate back. So don't fall for it every time. The, the rebate, this car's got a $3,000 rebate on it. Huh? Uh, somewhere down the line, it got tacked in there. Number three, trap number three, the cost of no money down. Hey, 
Buddy, we can put you in this car today, nothing down. We'll get you financed. Nothing down. You know, it's not wise to buy a lot of stuff, nothing down anyway. You see the TV ads and things like that. The cost of no down. If you don't pay anything down, it's just going to be more interest is tacked onto your loan because you didn't pay anything down. I mean, there ain't no free lunch. My bank sends me a Christmas card every Christmas. Isn't that nice? And they tell, this, this, this is well ahead of Christmas. It's like last November, 1st December. They'll send me a nice Christmas card and say, oh, by the way, we, this is used to back when I had uh, cars financed at the bank. <laughs> They'd send me that Christmas card and say, by the way, you can, uh, you can choose to defer your December payment out of the goodness of her heart, we're going to let you defer that December payment. It won't, it won't be due. You can just skip it. Well, you read the fine print on that little nice little Christmas card, and it'll tell you that there's a service charge involved. It's the same price as writing a hot check. <laughs> the only difference is you're paying for the hot check up front <laughs> as though you'd already written it. Don't fall for the gimmicks. There ain't no free lunch. Now let's go back to the original question. What kind of vehicle can I afford? Well, the rule of thumb is we can spend up to 15% of our net income on transportation after tithes and taxes. You know, you're, if, you're, if your employer pays you $1,000 a week, uh, you're not getting $1,000 a week, are you? You don't get disposable income. Uncle Sam holds some of that out, doesn't he? Or you have to pay it at the end of the year. I mean, it costs money to live in America. Uncle Sam's going to get his cut. And then if you're a tither, which I, I, I've always been a tither, I tithe to my church ever since I've been saved for 40 years, and, and the Lord seems to have blessed it. But if, if you're going to figure your net income, you need to take things off of the top like taxes and tithes and say, now here's my disposable income. This is what I've really got that I can spend. And 15% is kind of a rule of thumb that if you're going to spend spend more than that, you're going overboard. And the percentage should include not just your car payments, includes your fuel, your insurance, maintenance. You got to change oil once in a while. Don't need tires once in a while. You might want a new set of floor mats. Always something. Muffler burns out. And so you got to figure those things in as part of your cost of transportation because there ain't no free lunch. Well, I've got some figures down here. I'm going to go through these. I'm just going to read these off because I don't want to get into this too long. Our time will be up soon, and I want to get to some other stuff. But the typical family, typical family income at the present uh, might be more, but let's just, let's just use 54000 because that's the way I had it figured here, and it'll be easier. If your income is 54000 a year, uh, just for math purposes, subtract 10% for tithes and 15% for taxes, and that leaves a little over 40000 out of that uh, for disposable income. 15% of that is $6,000, uh, which is what you could afford for transportation. And then if you're figuring it at 15%, and then so your transportation costs would be about $506 a month. Well, 
that kind of gives you a ballpark figure of where you're going to be. And that's not all $506 a month for a car payment, but includes your other transportation expenses to keep the thing rolling. If the annual income for a single person, now that was for what we just talked about was for a family, but if a single person, if their annual income is 27000 then you subtract 25% for tithes and taxes, leaves 20250 and you figure 15% for that percentage of your total income that could be sent towards uh, transportation, <coughs> then that would figure around $253 a month. Man, the time you figure gasoline and insurance out of that, that doesn't leave much for a car payment, does it? You see why we're better off not to have car payments and just buy them for cash, save up till we can afford it. Um, these figures may look painful, but they need to be. The reason most of us don't feel pain when we're spending a lot of money, let me show you why you don't feel a lot of pain. You pull up to the gas pump and uh, you plug that in, you get a receipt out, you don't feel any pain at all. Now, you know what's painful? What's painful is when you have to reach in there and you pull those out. If you had to pay your taxes with these, if you had to go into a local office at the end of the year and Uncle Sam says, I want cash, if you started pulling these out, we'd have a revolt on hand in America. People would say, I ain't doing that anymore. But it don't hurt. It's not painful because you're paying it in, most of us paying it in during the year. And at the end of the year, we get a, we get a little bit back and we feel like we've got a gift. But they had those dollar bills all year long. And it didn't cause any pain. By the way, that's a Harbor Freight gift card, in case you was wondering what brand of credit card. Not a credit card. It was a gift card. Now, I've got a credit card, and I got one uh, after being years without one. I got one just so I could rent a vehicle if I needed or buy airline tickets and things like that. Uh, a lot of people don't want to take cash anymore, and I don't like that. I, I wish stuff was cash more, and I try to pay cash when I can. But they kind of force it on you. Now, after determining what kind of vehicle we can afford, then we've got to answer this next question. Which vehicle category is best for me? Which vehicle category? SUV? Four-door sedan? They don't make station wagons anymore, do they? <laughs> you can get a caravan. Or what kind of vehicle do we really we need? Well, let's talk about what method of Purchase is the best. So when we're talking about category, we're going beyond just the type of vehicle it is and how we're going to purchase our use of this vehicle. There's three ways. First, there's buying a new vehicle. Number two, buying a used vehicle. And number three, leasing a vehicle. New vehicle depreciates about 20% the moment you drive it off the lot. <laughs> 20%. Because when you drive it out the driveway of the car, you've signed the papers. Basically, in the office, when you sign the papers, it becomes a used car. And once you drive it off the lot, if you come back and ask them how much you can get out of it, you won't get near what you just paid for it. You put two miles on it and come back, they ain't going to give you that for it. You have to bite the bullet. And it's going to depreciate about 20% just because you bought it. Nobody actually drives a new car. You ever think about that? Nobody really drives a new car. The only time you would drive a new car is during a test drive before you sign the papers. 
and it's their new car at that point. So if we paid an average of say uh, $32,000 for a fairly cheap car now, and that's pretty cheap, if you buy a car for $32,000 uh, and you drive it home, it's worth about $6,400 less than you just gave for it five minutes ago. Does it sound like a good deal to buy a new car? And moreover, in the next 12 months, it's going to depreciate another 10% for a total loss of up to 30% from the time you bought it, or 9600 the first year you own it. And this is on a cheap car. Just think what it would be on an expensive one. I'm not saying no one should ever buy a new car, but most people should not. And again, it's everybody's choice, whatever you want to buy. I'm just saying it's not wise most of the time. If Donald Trump wants to buy a new car, I say he can afford it. If Steve Forbes or uh, what's the guy, Facebook guy, huh? Elon Musk, yeah, if they're going to buy a new car, I think it'd probably be okay. <laughs> they can afford it. And they probably won't have to make payments either. But for most of us that we're trying to make ends meet, month in, month out, we probably don't need to blow that kind of money, 10000 bucks a year, just in depreciation alone, besides what it took to put gas in it and buy insurance for it and do any maintenance on it. The second year we own a new vehicle, it depreciates as much as 20% more. So in the first two years, we own a new vehicle, it could depreciate by 50% or more in two years. So here's the deal. If you can buy a car that's two or maybe three years old and it's got maybe 30,000 or 40,000 miles on it and it's got that much depreciation already off of it and you can buy it for 50% and it's just barely broke in, wouldn't that make more sense to most of us than buying a brand new one and having to struggle with all of that depreciation, I think it makes sense. You just got to do a little bit of math to figure that out. Um, the salesman will say, well, I can sell you a new car, and you're looking for a used car. And he'll say, I can sell you a new, a new car for lower payments than you can get on that used one you just looked at. Well, that may be true. Lower payments for this many months more Instead of being in debt for 24 months or 36 months, you'll be in debt for seven or eight years. Man, I can't believe they finance those things that long these days, but they do. Well, so that's new cars. Let's talk about used vehicles. Some people won't buy a used vehicle because they're afraid they'll get a lemon. Well, the truth is new cars are not perfect either. I've seen people, I worked at a dealership, Chrysler dealership. We showed Dodges, Plymouths, and Chryslers. And, and, man, you'd be surprised at the brand-new cars coming back in for service because something went kaputty. And if somebody, while they're under warranty, that bought that thing brand-new and they get all those bugs worked out during the first 24 months, it might even have some warranty left on it, and we buy that one that's 24 months old, still low mileage, still got a little warranty on it, and they've already worked the bugs out, the chances of getting a lemon are less. Not even, not everybody needs to buy a new car. Not everybody needs to buy one even as new as two years old. It might be that some people need to buy one several years old. You know, budgets are different. Incomes are different. Uh, 
most financial experts, well, let's see, back, let me back up. I think you got a blank here to fill in. Uh, if we can find a two or three year old vehicle uh, we like, we can buy it for near half the original pur- purchase price. Now, let me, let me put a disclaimer in the middle of all this because when COVID came along a couple of years ago and halted production and, and new cars got scarce and there for a while it was true that you could just nearly buy a brand new car as cheap as you could buy a used one because they weren't manufacturing a lot of new ones. People weren't buying a lot of new ones and the used ones were scarce and it did look attractive for a while. Now that's beginning to change back a little but, but times right now are different, a little bit different than they were for decades before. So there might be some caveats that go with this, but what we're saying is general truths and general principles. But most experts recommend buying a well-maintained, low-mileage, two- or three-year-old vehicle rather than a, than a new one. If you can make a payment on a new one, you can make just a little bit more of a payment on a used one, and your finance time would be way shorter, like in half or better. You'd be out of debt faster. From year four to ten, the average vehicle will depreciate an average of less than 5% a year. From year four to 10, it doesn't depreciate much. It's done most of its depreciating in the first couple of years. And then it slows down. Now what happens after that is that car becomes less and less valuable on the market until it reaches like it's 50 years old. Like my Thunderbird, (laughs) I got a 65 T-Bird and I could sell it right now for more, I think, than what it costs brand new because it's over 50 years old. Now, I didn't buy it new. <laughs> I bought it used, and I, I, I wouldn't have bought it unless it had been a super good deal. And I could, I could sell it for probably five to 10,000 more than what I actually gave for it because the thing just keeps going up. So, I mean, if you want to buy a brand new car now and wait 50 years, you can sell it for more than you gave for it, but maybe you'd do better putting your money in the bank or in some sort of investment type of a vehicle. Um, you got to always consider insurance and tags as well that you got to pay for these things, sales tax, um, Dave Ramsey would probably scream, the Christian financial advisor, he'd probably scream if I, if he knew I even hinted at the fact that you could finance a car. He thinks you ought to pay cash for all of them. The truth is we're at different levels of, uh, of our budget right now. And so if you can eventually get to the point where you, you drive an old clunker for a few years and save up your money that you would have paid into high-priced car payments, save that up. And then when you get ready to buy one, you can buy a two or three year old car and pay cash if you do, if you do it smart. But right now, if you're buying a car, I think it would be really, really wise not to finance a car for more than 36 months because you're just stretching those payments out so long, the payment, the interest keeps building up and it's, it's pretty crazy how it costs you. Now, <coughs> so we, we talked about new cars, Used car is now the leased car. Here's, here's my evaluation of leasing a car. (laughs) 
I leased one one time. We got in a, in a situation when, when we lived in Denver. We bought a Dodge Dynasty that we could afford when we were here uh, on vacation. And it was a pretty nice looking little car. Wasn't new, it was fairly used. <laughs> but we drove it back to Denver. It did fine on the trip. Then we got there and started to register the thing, and we forgot about all the eco-freaks that live there that's made laws. Now, if, they, if the mechanic can rev the engine up and get one little puff of smoke out of the tailpipe, you can't register it. So you've got to put a new engine in it, rebuild the one you've got, or junk it. And so here we are now in Denver, Colorado, and we've got a car that we can't register. So started trying to sell it. Of course, nobody wanted to buy it because it's puff. You make it puff a little puff of smoke, nobody else could register it either. And dealership's not going to give anything for it because they don't want to put a new engine in an old car. And so here we are sitting on this thing, and we've got to make a decision before uh, the registration time runs out. So they ran a special down the street at the Dodge dealership, and Dodge Intrepids were, had just come out. Man, they're a pretty car and they had a loss leader. They were advertising at real, real low price, which was a low price, but it's still a new car, and we didn't really want to buy a new car. And so uh, we worked out a deal finally where they would trade for our old car if we would lease their new car. They got those payments down where they were pretty, pretty low, where we could afford it. But then later on, when we moved back to Arkansas, we still had that thing to pay it off early, they charge you extra to pay off early. And if you drive it more miles than they had allocated to you, it goes downhill there. You've got to pay extra for that. And, you, and if you keep it till you pay it completely off, it's not your car anymore. They get it back. So leasing a car, in my opinion, and if any car dealers are watching online, forgive me, but I think it's the dumbest kind of way to buy a car possible. Buy a junker and pay cash. Even buying a brand new car would make more sense than leasing one because they come out winner, and when it's all said and done, you lose the car. And so I would never do that again. If we lease a vehicle, the lease is up. We don't even own the vehicle. It goes in your blanks. We don't even own the vehicle. Moreover, with leased, penal leased vehicles, there are often expensive penalties for early payoff and mileage. And if you drive more than 12,000 or 15,000, whatever they allow you uh, per year, then you've got to pay extra penalties for that. So it's a bad deal. Number four, I think this is our last one. How do I pay for a vehicle? Yeah, that's the big question, isn't it? <laughs> How do I pay for the vehicle? Well, the best way, of course, is to pay cash. Save up your money if you can afford it and just buy it and then you don't pay any interest at all. You don't owe anybody anything. Nobody has any control. It's yours. The title's in your name from get-go. Um, but how do you pay for it? Well, buy a clunker. Drive it for a couple of years. One that you can pay cash for. Drive it for a couple of years. Pay yourself four or $500 a month. Put it into a savings account. And then when you get ready to get rid of the old clunker in a couple of years, you've got all your money saved up. Go and buy one that's a little better uh, for cash. And if you can't get one that's uh, two to three years old, buy what you can afford with the cash you saved. And then the next one you buy, just keep on paying yourself that four or five, six hundred dollars a month, whatever a new car payment would be. Keep putting it in a bank account. And each time you trade, you, 
you, or, or sell, you, you move up the ladder a little further and pretty soon you have enough money saved up over here while you're driving that one. It wasn't quite as new as you wanted, but you'll eventually be able to pay cash for what you want. And you'll feel a lot better about it and you won't be in financial bondage. Well, if we can't pay cash, there's a couple more things we can do. Number one, get pre-approved loan uh, through your bank or some lending institution. Get a pre-approved loan and then go shop for your vehicle and you're already prepaid and you don't have to negotiate with the guy at the car lot on because he's, he's going to make money off of your financing. And so if you can, if you can have a pre-approved loan, you can buy it wherever you want to buy it and you don't have to worry about somebody getting you approved or how much the interest rate's going to be. You already know what it's going to be through your lending institution. And that gives you uh, a little bit better negotiating uh, opportunities too. And don't ever pay sticker price. I know they got up to, some of the cars got up to sticker price during the COVID thing. Uh, I would never give a sticker price. I think that's crazy. Uh, dealerships have always, and I worked at a dealership. I know how it works. They, they, uh, they have a, a pretty large markup in those things. And then they have, even if they show you the invoice, they have what they call as a holdback that's in code, and you don't know how much that holdback is, but if you pay invoice price, what their dealer cost is, they still made money off of it because they may have a thousand or two thousand dollars dealer holdback that they made off of it. And again, I don't care for making a little money, I just don't want to make it all off of me. So shop, buy it from a private party if you need to. I'd rather buy a private party if. I, I don't like going to dealerships if I don't have to because you got to play that game. You know, you deal with the salesman. He goes and takes your offer to the sales manager, and the sales manager says, no, we can't do that. And he sends the salesman back to you and says, says here's what we can do. And, boy, we're really stretching to do this for you. And, and get your heart to bleeding, you know. And you say, well, no, I don't, I don't think I can do that. Uh, and you make them an offer back, and they go run back and forth. I, I hate that. And then, and then if you try to drive off the lot without buying one, they start shooting at you with 12-gauge shotgun and things like that. And so uh, if you can buy a private party vehicle, you're a lot of times going to be better off. Buy it from somebody who lives in the same town as you. I wouldn't, I'd be careful about buying one a long ways off or something if, unless you really know the people. And uh, try to avoid trading in a vehicle that's not paid for. What happens is, if, especially if you're upside down in a car, you owe more in payments than the thing is actually worth to sell it. You're upside down. You owe more than it's worth. So when you go to trade that in, they're going to roll over what you are owe excessively over into your new one, and now you're going to start off with a new car that's already upside down. It's going to be, it's going to be worth less than what you just financed on it. And so that becomes a snowball in the wrong direction. And it's a horrible uh, circuit to get into. And know exactly what you're paying for a car. Avoid talking to them as long as you can about payments and, and trade-ins and things like that. You're, in fact, you're better off if you can sell your car on Marketplace, Facebook Marketplace, or sell your car uh, to some used car dealer that's willing to give you a right price. I sold one way one time. You can actually, once in a while, sell one to a dealer that's really hurting for used cars and get what it's worth. And, but if you can sell your trade-in, that puts you in a better position to buy one outright because when they start figuring your trade, they're not going to give you what your car is worth. 
I worked in the dealership. I know how it works. And they're going to start off, if your car is pretty much an old clunker, they're not giving you anything. I mean zero. And they figure if we can sell this thing to the junkyard, well, we'll make a little bit off of that, but we're going to charge him full price for the car and tell him we gave him so much for his trade-in. They didn't give you anything on trade-in. It's all in, well, we could say semantics, but it's really in the, the trick, trickery of the paperwork. On paper, they can make it look like they gave you $5,000 for your trade-in, but you didn't get any, maybe not 1000 because it's all in the way they show it on paper. Anything can be done on paper. So if you sell your trade-in to somebody else at a reasonable price, then go and buy your car outright, then you know exactly where you're dealing because you're talking about a cash price with no trade-in, no extras, no financing. You're just buying the thing. And boy, that's, that's simple. K-I-S-S, right? Keep it simple. <laughs> he said it, I didn't. <laughs> Yeah, keep it simple, stupid. Don't. The more variables you get figured in, the less you know about it. So buy a car that's been used a couple of years, two or three years, and don't, uh, don't make yourself a bad steward by buying stuff you can't afford. Uh, what about getting out, of a, out from under a car that you already owe too much on. You go to dealership. We had, we, we had a guy in the church years ago that he was trading all the time. I don't know how he could trade, but he was tra every few months he'd come up with a different vehicle and he went and traded again. And I, I, I know what he was financing. He was going upside down every time. I, I bet he's still paying on those things. But if you're upside down and the dealer can't even trade with you, then how do you get out of a burden of having a car that you owe more than it's worth? Well, Dave Ramsey, the Christian financial counselor, says that it's better, if there's no other way out, it's better to go get a loan for the balance of what you owe that's upside down. In other words, if you've got a, you've got a car that's, that's worth $10,000 and you owe 15000 on it, go get a $5,000 loan. Dave's not for getting loans, but he says in this case, it's better than be, you got a smaller loan than you would have with that car. Go get a loan for the 5000 sell the car for 10000 what it's really worth, and then pay off the note at the bank, the $5,000 bank, and then don't do dumb things again. <laughs> making, making a small payment on a small loan is better than making a huge payment on a dumb loan that you're never going to get paid off. Dad was not a Christian when I was growing up, but he had a saying that kind of makes sense. He'd talk, he'd talk about somebody buying something more expensive than they could afford. He said, son, they've got a champagne paste on a beer pocketbook, <laughs> and you can't afford to buy things. It's just not worth it. Uh, pray and calculate before you spend. Let's pray together, shall we? Father, I pray that you'd bless us. Help us to make wise decisions. Help us not to go further in debt, but to find our way a way, a method to get out of debt. And Lord, it may not happen quickly, but Lord, help us to go in the right direction so that we can serve you better and be more responsible, better stewards, and be out of financial bondage. I pray that you'd bless us during the invitation time. With our heads bowed and eyes closed, if you need to pray, feel free to come. If there's somebody in this room or watching online and you never trusted Jesus as your Savior, 
I want you to know that you can make the best deals on cars that could ever be and still die and go to hell. You need a Savior. You have sins that need to be paid for, and you can't pay for them. Only Jesus can. And so trust Him as your Savior. Put your faith in Him tonight. He died on the cross to set you free from Satan's bondage. Tell Him you're a sinner, just like the Bible says, and that you need to receive Him as Savior, that you believe He died for you. Put your trust in Him. He'll save you.